If you'll take your Bibles, please, again to Luke's Gospel, the uh, seventh chapter. We're, we're in verses 24 through 35 this morning. And this message completes this part of Luke chapter 7 about John the Baptist. This section finds John in prison because he dared to rebuke King Herod Antipas for his unlawful marriage to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. She left him and became the wife of Herod Antipas. This happened fairly early in the ministries of both John and Jesus, which explains John's concerns. He has just barely gotten started. He's introduced Jesus Christ, but now he's in jail. So he's having some questions about that. So by way of introduction, then we briefly return to what we had uh, spoken of last week. So then note first here his incarceration, John's incarceration. And as noted last week, in comparing the texts about his incarceration, which are found in Matthew and Luke and also in Mark's Gospel, it would appear that some months have passed that he has been in prison. And two things support this conclusion. First of all, although Herod's first reaction was to put John to death, he feared the people because they believed John to be a prophet. This we find in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 5. And let me read that verse to you. Though Herod... Uh, though he, as Herod, wanted to put him to death. And the idea is he wanted to do that immediately. He feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. How would that look for the king to put a prophet to death? And uh, so he hesitated, and that was a good thing. That was God's will. But... Uh, that means he was forced now to protect John, even though Herodias really wanted him dead. And I imagine she nagged him about it too. <laughs> now second though, as he was protecting John, he listened to him, which was dangerous. <laughs> and and we, re, we uh, discover this in Mark's Gospel, the sixth uh, chapter and verse 20 where we read Herod feared John first he feared the people now he fears John and he knowing that he was a righteous and holy man he recognized the character of this man that he had incarcerated and now he begins to believe that he needs to keep him safe so he says he kept him safe protecting him from his own wife. And then it says he heard him. He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. He was perplexed about, what? do I kill him? Do I make my wife happy? Do I keep him alive? Uh, and I'm angry with him for having confronted me about the issue. He's, he's, he's got inner turmoil but now but yet 
here's a holy man and he's listening to this man and he's making sense and he heard him gladly. So these two references then argue that some weeks and perhaps months would be required for Herod's change of mind. Nevertheless, Herodias' hatred for John prevailed and John was executed as recorded there in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, the first 11 verses, and in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, about the middle of the chapter on. So this was during then uh, this, the imprisonment here that John's disciples come to him to report on Jesus' growing ministry. Remember, this is early in their ministry. Jesus is not yet well known. And, but reports about what he's doing and what he's saying are growing. And, uh, and, and in this case, it probably was the, these disciples of John were provoked by the reaction of the people to, jo to Jesus raising the dead son of the widow of Nain, which was recorded just previous to this section. And so in verse 17, we read this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And I believe that is what triggers these disciples going to John and reporting these things to John. And then John sends two of these disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Which is an unusual question in light of the report. But I think John, the problem here is John's expectations. And we looked at that last week as well. John had expectations of the kingdom of God that were wrong. And now we find Jesus' compassionate response to that in correction of John. So he, John had mistakenly understood that God had prepared him for a dynamic ministry regarding the kingdom of God. And as Messiah's forerunner, he had prepared the way for the promised king. He had announced Christ, baptized him, and then called the apostate nation to repent in expectation of the establishment of that kingdom in their midst. However, Instead of seeing the kingdom established and Jesus sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem, as he, I think, anticipated, he's sitting in a prison cell. Things haven't gone well and the throne hasn't been established. Could he have been mistaken about Jesus? He needed reassurance. And thus he sent the two disciples to ask Jesus. Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus received these disciples and directed them to watch as he then went about his ministry. You guys hang around here and observe this. Observe things here. So the scriptures tell us that he healed many people of diseases, plagues, evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. There in verse 21. Which pointed back to the prediction in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. Then he sent them away with this admonition. 
And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, what does that mean? Jesus did not want John to take offense like the rulers of the Jews did. Jesus clearly had Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 in mind when he said that. And uh, he didn't quote it, but Paul does. And he quotes that very verse here in uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. Paul wrote there, they, referring to the Israelites, or to the actually the leaders of the Israelites, have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, then he quotes from Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So you, if you don't believe in him, you're going to stumble over him. If you do believe him, you're not going to be put to shame. And I think that was the issue here. Blessed is he who, and blessed is one who is not offended in me. So their offense then came because they saw Jesus not meeting their expectations of Messiah. So he confronted them, and, that, and the second thing is, not, not only did he, he not live up to their expectations, but he became a problem to them in confronting them with their prideful and hypocritical practices of their Jewish religion. Jesus pointed out that their supposed righteousness, their right standing with God, was actually an abomination to God. And so they hated Jesus. And Jesus said, because they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And then, as we noted, the Jews held the view that Messiah would come out of nowhere. That's why they asked, well, we know his parents. We, he, we know where he's from. He's from Nazareth. And we know his parents and his siblings. He can't be the Messiah because Messiah is going to come out of nowhere unexpectedly and suddenly and powerfully overthrow the Gentile dominion of Israel. And then he's going to reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem. And John and his disciples had the same understanding. We know that because, remember, as they're coming to the end of Jesus' life, a couple of them, James and John, came to him and said, uh, would you, uh, you know, the, the mother of James and John came to Jesus and said, would you allow my sons to sit on your right and your left in the kingdom? Because they, they, you're going to set it up, aren't you? We like a prominent place in that kingdom. We'd like to sit right there beside you. That didn't happen. So John here is, has become discouraged because of his expectation concerning the kingdom that was not happening. So then I ask this question. What are your expectations regarding God and his dealings with you? Many suppose Christians have fallen away from the Lord because the Lord did not meet their expectations. The scriptures, however, require submission and trust in the Lord even when his path is not clear. He never fails his own.
He said, I will be with you. Paul opens the 10th chapter of Romans by explaining the problem of the Jews and their expectations in verses 1 to 4. And although they had a zeal for God, they did not act according to, that, to the truth. Their problem was being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is, the, the way that we have a right standing with God, and, and as a consequence, they went about to establish their own righteousness through law-keeping, or actually not so much law-keeping as rule-keeping, rules that they had established that they regarded as fulfilling the law. So then how does one relate to God in a way that's acceptable to him? Is it by doing something? Keeping rules? Insisting on conformity to certain expectations? I believe due to their wrong understanding, the Jews sought an acceptable relationship with God on their terms, not God's. And that is a real problem in the church today as well. We think that we can relate to God on my understanding, my terms, and rather than God's. And God's way is faith in Christ alone. So in verse 4 there of Romans 10, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, that is, right standing with God, to everyone who believes, not works, but believes, that is, trusts in Christ alone. Now, does that leave out works? No. Believing should prove itself by works, like James says. Jesus then turned to the crowd after he had said, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He turns to the crowd and begins to address this issue of John being a prophet. So that's the second part here, the prophet. Yes, and more than a prophet, we read there in verses 24 to 30. Jesus endorsed the ministry of John the Baptist. He didn't rebuke, he, he didn't rebuke him. He cautioned him, blessed is the one who is not offended in me. You go tell John what you saw, because that fulfills what the Old Testament prophets have said concerning me. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, I want to tell you about John. And here is a very enigmatic statement that's difficult to understand. And so let, we're going to need to look at. But he began by asking the crowd, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? Because he's, he's addressing people that did go out. They went out to hear John the Baptist. Not only did they, be, they hear him, they believed him and they submitted to him and were baptized by him. So he asked them, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Were you just going out to sightsee? <laughs> Look at nature? Or did you go out there to see uh, a dignitary dressed in fancy clothes? No, you wouldn't have gone out to the wilderness for that. You'd have gone to the king's palace for that. But then what did you go out there to see? Did you go out to, for a prophet? Yes. Prophets like Elijah were found in the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? Because 
they were unpopular. <laughs> they were rejected. For their own protection, they stayed in the wilderness. But there's where the powerful message of the gospel or the, the truth was given. You went out into the wilderness and you went out to hear John and he was a prophet, but he's no ordinary prophet. He fulfills Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which Jesus quoted there in verse 27. John the Baptist began the work of preparation for, a, for the entrance of the kingdom of God, preaching in the wilderness, calling the nation to repentance and demanding that they give evidence of that repentance by their act of being baptized. And we should note here, too, that John's baptism is not Christian baptism. The Jews used baptism as an outward ritual cleansing, acknowledging ceremonial uncleanness. This was followed up by demonstrating a change of behavior, fruit in keeping with that repentance. Christian baptism, on the other hand, instead of demonstrating the repenting of covenant failings, it demonstrates the death of the old life, death to the old life, and resurrection to a new life in Christ. It is a response of submissive obedience to the gospel of Christ. Believers recognize that they have died with Christ, and as Christ was raised from the dead, so they are raised with him to new life. Thus, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we, uh, we were buried with him, Therefore, with him, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, let's move on then and notice here that how Jesus gives John high praise, but with an important qualification. In verse 28, which is the difficult Verse 2, for folks to understand, I want to, let me read it here. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one, notice this is the comparison, not with prophets, but with, with uh, those that are least in the kingdom of God. So here, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does Jesus mean by that? And a casual read is likely to lead to the conclusion that John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived. None of, of born of women is greater than John. Here, he is the greatest man that ever lived. No, 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 that would be a mistake. Jesus was speaking about John's being a prophet. So this is the comparison. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, Jesus said there in verse 26, preceding that. Je Jesus here compared John with the prophets that preceded him in the Old Testament. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Daniel, for example. Second, Jesus did not say that John was the greatest prophet who ever lived either. 
or greater than any prophet that preceded him. Read it carefully. Jesus said that there was none greater than John. Nobody rose into a higher uh, position than John did. And why? Because John was called of God as the forerunner of the Messiah. Fulfilling Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. So then Jesus compared John not with Old Testament prophets, but with the one who is least in the kingdom of God. Here again, we must ask, what does this comparison involve? One might think that greater has to do with esteem. I esteem John, a, a, the greatest prophet that ever was. But, no, that would be a mistake. Would Jesus use a pride-based standard to honor a servant of God? No. The scribes and the Pharisees loved to be in, held in high esteem by others, which Jesus condemned. There in Luke chapter 20, verse 46, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Impress everybody. And love the greetings in the marketplaces. Having folks call them rabbi. And the best seats in the synagogue. Oh, this is reserved for you. You are important and we esteem you high. So sit here or places of honor in the feasts. But rather here, the idea of being greater has to do with privilege not esteem. Privilege. John enjoyed great privilege from God being used of God to prepare the way for Jesus. His privilege was such that no other prophet enjoyed a higher privilege than John. And again, the Lord used this statement to introduce the fact that the least honored member of the kingdom of God enjoys greater privilege than those who were held in great honor under the Old Covenant. You see that? You have privileges that Old Covenant people never dreamed of. The people who heard Jesus even acknowledged the truth of this because the scripture says there in verse 29, that uh, they justified God, or they, they held God, they justified God, or held God to be just, declaring God to be just. I, there's another reading would have the people justifying God. And I, and I believe that's the, really the best reading, as the text here shows, and they proved the accuracy of Jesus' words because they heard the preaching of John, obeyed the preaching of John, and evidenced their faith by submitting to being baptized by him. So, that brings us to this question. What then was the greater privilege enjoyed by the least of, the, of those in the kingdom of God? Here it is. Listen. Matthew includes something that Luke omits. Matthew adds this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. That 
that that's another difficult phrase. And I've always wondered, what in the world did Jesus mean by this? And then Jesus went on, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Notice the prophets and the law. That's the Old Testament scriptures. And they prophesied until John. And so then Jesus said, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Prophesied there in the last verses of Malachi, which closed the Old Testament. So then he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, are you enabled by the Holy Spirit of God to hear this and understand it and believe it? That's what that phrase means. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's Matthew 11, verses 12 to 15. So here's another puzzling saying that has provoked a number of interpretations. And we don't have time to elaborate on these. But I want to examine the text here and I think draw an, an accurate understanding of what it means. First, note the time frame involved here. From the days of John the Baptist until now. From the days of John the Baptist until now. John's ministry served as the closing point of the Old Covenant era. For the law and the prophets prophesied when? Until John. In other words, John was the last Old Testament prophet. The one promised in the closing verses of the Old Testament itself. Thus, from the end of the Old Covenant until now, and I believe that's the time when, when Matthew wrote his gospel, the kingdom of, of heaven has suffered violence. Now, what does that mean? This now here. And I believe what, what we're talking about here is now implies that the kingdom of heaven introduced in this period... John did not initiate the kingdom. Jesus did. John just introduced Jesus. He ended the Old Testament. Now John is introducing Jesus, who then inaugurates the kingdom. So John is the last Old Testament prophet, and Jesus now introduces the new covenant and the kingdom of God was inaugurated during John's ministry, however, because he was still alive when Jesus came on the scene and began his ministry. So, and so the point is with this until now is not that this is a terminus point, but John is just merely saying, or Matthew in this case is merely saying, that this began with John and John's day, and continues until now with the implication that it will continue on. And it has. We're still living in that day, that period of time. Notice the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. What does that mean? I believe it simply means this. The inauguration of the kingdom would be met with violence, violent opposition. Because Jesus introduced a kingdom that didn't fit the expectations of the Jews themselves. 
Remember when Jesus went to the synagogue there in Nazareth? And he, when he began his ministry, he read from the prophet Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And in that he declared its fulfillment. This prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he went on to explain what that meant. And that it would include Gentiles. And they, the people became angry with him. And they wanted to throw him off a cliff. But it was not his time. So that, that kingdom then would suffer violence in this age as illustrated also in Revelation. Revelation 11 is an interesting uh, passage. It's the vision of the two witnesses who are pictured as lampstands. Well, what is a lampstand? Well, according to the book of Revelation, it opens with Jesus standing in the midst of lampstands there in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Those lampstands represent the 12 churches of Asia Minor. So the two lampstands in, in Revelation 11 picture the church, the two witnesses, by the, which is an Old Testament figure of the establishment of truth. In the mouth of two or three witnesses will a thing be established. So here's the ministry of the church. And during that time, they, are, are, they have enemies that oppose them. But they are nevertheless successful over it. And so Jesus declared, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There in uh, Matthew 16, 18. And why? Because Jesus gave them authority which is pictured in what, what is referred to here as the keys of the kingdom, verse 9. But if you read the full chapter there, chapter of Revelation 11, you find out that when they had finished their testimony, there's going to come a place when the church is done with its testimony in the world. And when that happens, it says the beast which is the government system, the governmental system in the world, will arise from the bottomless pit to make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, they've, 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 they've had opposition all up to this, but they've been successful over their opposition. But now it appears that, that uh, Satan's beast here has defeated them. But that is, is only apparent also, and their, their celebration of the victory will be very short-lived because the scripture declares there, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Verse 11. Whew. Great fear fell on those on the earth, but notice what happens in heaven. The 24 elders also fall on their faces and worship God. And they declare, you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Yeah. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants. That's the end. That's the terminus point of this reign. And those who fear your name in the right way. 
Indeed, the kingdoms of the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. We're not very popular. That brings me to this, and I'll be closing it up here just very quickly. The one who is the least in the kingdom has greater privileges than even the most honored of the old covenant prophets. And why? Because of the work of Jesus. Kingdom saints have been regenerated to new and eternal life. And so Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. They have been forgiven and powerfully enabled through grace. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. This was new to, to new covenant believers. Never, Jesus said, it's necessary for you that I go away, for if I don't go away, then the Holy Spirit will not come. Come permanently to indwell you, to take my place and establish himself in your lives to enable you to overcome the flesh. He's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus who then enables us to overcome the flesh and then he's the one who guides us into all truth. And then they have been chosen in him to be holy and blameless before him. They have been adopted as sons according to the purpose of his will. No Old Testament saint was ever called the Son of God. But John 1.12 tells us that those who trust Jesus Christ are called, are given the privilege of being the sons of God. And they have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his dear Son. And thanks be to God, they have the victory through their Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul tells us there in 1 Corinthians 15. These are just a few of the privileges of kingdom saints. In stark contrast to this, the people of John's generation, and he describes them. What are, what's, the, what's this generation like? That's still under, the, under John's time. To what then shall I compare the, the people of this generation and what are they like? Children sitting in the marketplace. I love to watch children play. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, seeing them carry on and, and uh, sometimes they, pre they act in a way that is just so totally unpredictable. And that's what Jesus is saying here. They say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. You're supposed to do what we ask you to do, what we tell you to do, see? So using that example of the day of children playing in the streets, Jesus wanted to illustrate the response of the Pharisees. Jesus likened that generation to stubborn children and their seeming irrational response to himself and to John the Baptist. John has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John was austere and disciplined, but the Jews condemned his behavior as demonic. And on the other hand, Jesus associated with tax collectors and sinners, even attending their feasts and such. The Jews didn't like that either. 
They saw him as a glutton and a drunkard. The Pharisees believed that righteousness was attained through separation from those known to be sinful. Now, we're to be separated from the world, absolutely. But we need to be a friend of sinners like Jesus. And their, But their idea was, look at us. We're holy. They're not. This notion was clearly rejected by Jesus who went out of his way to reach that lost, congr- uh, that lost generation. He was a friend of publicans and sinners. He concluded the, that with this rebuke, wisdom is justified. And I think it would be better translated here, wisdom is vindicated by her child, all her children. Wisdom. That is, from God's perspective. What we see from God's perspective, it's vindicated by all her children, wisdom's children. Yes, there will be times when believers should imitate John, especially in times of fasting and prayer. And there are times when, when God burdens them to, with the need to withdraw and to seek his face. But then there are times when God's people need to be welcoming to go in among sinners and present to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, to pray for them and to work with them, to see them brought into the company of believers. But they do, they're to do so with uncompromising witness to the grace of God. And then believers must be submissive to the leading of the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of wisdom. Are you being led by the spirit? In this, with the spirit of wisdom? Father, thank you for this wonderful passage. Lord, I pray that your spirit would enable us to fully understand what it, what it says and what it's all about. Lord, that we might be a, a people of God. That we might walk in your ways led by your spirit, enabled by your grace. Lord, bold to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to this sinful generation in order that, Lord, that we may bring glory to your name. And we praise you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.